All right, so we did our rewatch last week. But one quick thing about the rewatch, and I think I mentioned this on the pod last week, but it's worth saying again, because I just made a comment about the pace of play being major. The other great difference is battle on ball, and we saw it in that game, and we did talk about that. Guys just made more contact, so there's less action because there's more swing and misses. There's more strikeouts as compared to a ground ball to second base or a fly ball to right field. So. I don't think the shift necessarily is going to change that. That's going to continue to be a thing. Maybe not a problem, but a thing. But there will be quicker action and more action. Got a lot of emails about our rewatch and thoughts about the game. Clayton Caldwell brought up a great point. He said that he read Ron Darling's New York Times bestseller in which he wrote a book called Game 7, 1986, Failure and Triumph in the Biggest Game of My Life. And in the book, he talks about that malfunction of the fence and said he was pissed off according to Clayton. I haven't read the book. I should. That's on me. I'll get to it at some point. He spoke about how pissed off he was and did say it was a big factor in his mind as he gave up the home run to Rich Gedman. <laughs> Gedman and he had a ton of history because they grew up together. So it bothered him even more. <laughs> that is really cool. I forgot that Ron wrote that book. He wrote a book all about, Game seven of the 86 World Series. That may be required reading for all of us. Uh, Also, Clayton writes, Darling was pulled. The timing was odd to me because Davey let Ronnie hit in the bottom of the third. I would have hit for him there, especially with arrested Sid and Doc available. Hurst was dealing and you're already down three. Interesting. Something else I found intriguing. Vin Scully mentioned this numerous times, but Roger McDowell, the second spitter, pitched in five of seven games in the World Series. No way that happens today. I found that fascinating. Maybe he ran out of gas late in game seven, speaking of that Red Sox rally. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, he was pitching a lot. There was a rainout between game six and game seven. So just keep that in mind. As far as letting Darling hit in the third is concerned, let me look back at this because I got my scorecard out. It's 3 nothing. He just gave up those back-to-back home runs and the RBI single to Boggs. There's one out, nobody on in the third. He lets him hit. I think, you know what I think that is? And you're right. This day and age, he's out of the game. This day and age, he may have been pulled after he gave up the hit base hit to Wade Boggs in the second inning. I think in that day and age, Davey's thinking, I want to get more innings out of him. I'm not taking him out after two innings because if you were three innings. No, it would have been two innings because he actually, well, he was batting in the third inning. So, yeah. It was after three innings, and he only got those two outs before he pulled them. Yeah, I guess he was just trying to squeeze another inning out of him. It's a fair point. Definitely is. Ken Ross writes about the woman behind home plate that we talked about with the hat. I always used to call her the lady with the hat, and she used to make those uh, hand gyrations that try to distract the Red Sox. Basically traveling calls. There you go. Like a traveling (laughs) call. Very good. Guys, her name was Bo, a fan of fans. Med earrings, the hat, often heard yelling at the top of her lungs, encouraging the player at the plate. And he gave an example. Carry on! Mark Carrion. Who could forget? Mark Carrion. You know what's <laughs> crazy about it? You know what I think of when I think of Mark Carrion? Outfielder. What's batted righty, hit lefty. No, I'm sorry. Hit le- batted righty, threw lefty. There you go. Yes. The Ricky Henderson, as we <laughs> like to call it. Uh, This is from Nicole. Nicole writes, love the Rico 33-year-old diehard fan, also waiting for my first World Series win. 
So I enjoyed living vicariously through those around in 86 to see it. A couple of thoughts. We all feel the same way, by the way. We all were living vicariously through watching Game 7. You mentioned a lot of things I also took away from the game having watched it for the first time. The home run sandwich wall collapse, Santana's inability to feel that tailored made ground ball double play, the unexpected Jesse Orozco RBI. But you also discussed how you didn't believe your dad. And this, by the way, is a huge conversation in the email. So she's the first one to reference it. There'll be a lot more talk about my dad, who may have to come on a Rico very soon to explain himself. Uh, you discussed how you didn't believe your dad when he said he was confident the Mets would win the whole time. It made me think of the pessimism of fans in general now versus then. It's almost as if fans were still golden then, not yet knocked down by endless terrible losses and seasons. I noticed during the game the crowd never seemed to lose the optimism, even down three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. You mentioned how you were nervous. I was too. But right after Darling gave up the second homer, there let's go Mets chance in the crowd. No one was booing Darling when he walked off the mound. There wasn't that you could hear a pin drop feeling, at least on TV at any point because of the early run deficit. All of this is to say when I was watching, I thought to myself, wow, somehow this crowd knew the Mets were going to win. So it was interesting to me when you mentioned your dad's thinking in the stands. This then led me to think, would you consider having your dad on the Rico? Of course I would have my dad on the Rico. My dad came on the Evan Roberts podcast talking about Bruno Sammartino after he died. So, yes, he can come on. I think his Met memories and perspective would be a real nice treat to listen to. I completely agree. I do think that Nicole brings up some incredibly, incredibly excellent points that I don't think I thought about while rewatching it. But now that she mentions it, it's so true. There was an optimism in that ballpark that doesn't match the negativity of today. So my dad probably wasn't full of bleep when he said to me, we knew we were going to win because the sound of that crowd felt like everybody thought the same thing. So I get it. I kind of get it. I'm starting to believe him. Can can I give you a WWE reference? Of course. So back in the day, you'd watch a fight. And then, all you know, Andre the Giants beating the crap out of Hulk Hogan. Ultimate Wars beating the crap out of Hulk Hogan. Whatever the case is. And the fans are kind of whatever. And all of a sudden, Hulk Hogan's doing that, like, you know, thing where he's getting hit in the back of the head. And he's Hulk still, up. Hulk up, Pete. Yeah. And, and the crowd's going crazy. And that could be at any point in the match. And whether they win, they lose, whatever the case is. The, the crowd the crowd is there in every single moment. And that's kind of what she's re- Nicole's referencing is that was the feel. It didn't make a difference. The crowd was in every moment. It was entertainment, but the belief was there that you could have that Hulk moment at any time. Yeah, and I, she's right. And I, there's more of this, so I don't want to just steal it from her and others, that we just weren't jaded back then. The Met fan wasn't a beaten up bunch. I mean... 1973 was 13 years earlier. It's not 30 years earlier. That's when they were in the World Series last, 1969. Like, if you think about the time frame, I put this in perspective. 1986, completely different team than the 73 team. They went through some tough times, but they rebuilt and they're a championship team within 13 years of their last pennant winner. 13 years ago for us in 2023 
is 2010, which it's a while ago, but it ain't forever ago. So maybe the Met fan, other than, yeah, they traded Seaver. Yeah, they had some horrible years in the late 70s and early 80s, but they didn't really have as many heartbreaks as we had. You know, losing the division in 85, it was a heartbreak, but it was also a great pennant race. I think people were just thrilled that they were back. The Mets were back. So maybe it was just the fan base were the same, but we weren't the same. We weren't as jaded as we are today, which is kind of what William Slootmaker gets to. The subject of his email is, your dad was not full of bleep. <laughs> Evan, you need to apologize to your dad. There was a time in our lives, though long ago, when we as Met fans were not nattering nibobs of negativism. Negativism. Negativism? Yeah. And there was that time in 1986. We did believe we would come back. And I, as a 16-year-old high school junior at the time, can relate for a few reasons. Number one, Davey Johnson had told us that all the Mets would dominate in 86, and they did. He did say that before the season. I saw that in the highlight video I watched as a kid. We witnessed many dramatic comebacks throughout that season. In the playoffs, the Mets had continuously come back. I was at game three against the Astros when they were down 4 nothing, being dominated by Bob Nepper, and they came back. Game six against the Astros. Again, ninth inning, amazing comeback. He's absolutely right. Number three, against the Red Sox, down 0-2 in the series, losing both games at Shea, came back. Game six, we all know what happened. We had experienced great comebacks time and time again. Plus, the Red Sox bullpen sucked. The Mets had guts. We weren't afraid at 3-0. We were tough and pretty much maintained that set of brass ones until... Terry Pendleton and Mike Sosha did us in. (laughs) I give my dad this about the Terry Pendleton home run, and he gave this to me. I still have it to this day. Uh, The Mets were in a pennant race with the Cardinals. The Mets, I think, were about to get within a half game of first place in 1987. Okay? And you can fact check me on this. And they're about to win. And Terry Pendleton hits a dramatic dramatic home run and it basically ended the Mets chances of coming back and winning the division and making the playoffs my dad stood up because there were two strikes on Terry Pendleton or they were down to their final out whatever it was and when Terry Pendleton hit that home run he declared from that day forward he would never ever 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 stand up (laughs) when the team was one out away from winning so here we go The Mets got within a game and a half of first place. They're playing the Cardinals on Friday, September 11th, obviously far before. September 11th, 1987. The Mets are about to pull within a half game of first place in the National League East. They are leading the game by a score of 4-1. to All right? There are two outs and a runner on second. 4-1. to Willie McGee singles. 4-2. to Terry Pendleton, home run deep center field, tie game. So didn't win the game, tie game. And then finally, in the top of the 10th inning, they won it. Finally, I got an inning later. They won it on a Tommy Her RBI single. And the Cardinals beat the Mets, and that was it. So my dad never stood up to cheer when they were one out away from winning ever again after the Terry Pendleton comeback. So that is actually a very famous game, not only in Met history, but I certainly learned about it very young as a kid. And so I don't stand up with two strikes. Never do. 
I don't do it. So it's all my dad's fault. I blame him. The, or I appreciate you, him. You need to change the karma. That's how things are going to change for the Mets. By doing what? By standing up and clapping? stand, Stand up and we're going to win the freaking World Series. That's, that's, that's going to change. I'm telling you, stop that's, doing it. All right. That's not going to happen. Doug Brunswick writes, hey, Evan, one <laughs> thing you didn't touch on, and I had to look this up immediately, was what Ray Knight said to Daryl Strawberry after he crossed home plate after the home run. I forgot about how pissed off Daryl was at Davey Johnson for the double switch in game six. I have heard about that. Anyway, a couple of articles of the time. So, yeah, it was basically an article how when Daryl hit the home run that put the game away in the eighth inning, if you look back on it, Ray Knight is talking to Strawberry for a few seconds at home plate. And basically, Ray Knight tells him, don't celebrate too much. Go back in that dugout like we've been here before. I thought that was fascinating. So good stuff that Ray Knight is a veteran leader of the team was kind of talking Daryl into, Hey, calm down. This is great. Relax. I have a question about Ray Knight. One thing I noticed at the end of the, you know, they win the world series. Everyone's celebrating. Did you notice that Knight and Santana look at each other and Knight kind of just like shoves him away and goes to the next guy. That was the one that stuck out. I'm like, you didn't even like hug him. You're hugging it. Like going to Carter and everyone else hugging each other. And like Knight and Santana look at each other. And he kind of just pushes him and runs away. So and that's why sure. Ray Knight was gone at the end of the season. He's like, I'm done. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I think it's one of those things I have to look back on and watch it again. I may have to watch game seven of the World Series again. There was a lot of positive feedback to the rewatch. It, it does seem like something people enjoyed. Maybe it's something we could do one more time before the start of the season, I guess. Should we mix in a loss, though? Should we get negative? I mean, though, negative sells in this business. So I feel like that's that's a heartbreaker would be amazing. The Mike Schultz game. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking about that. And I'll, t- I'll tell you the reason why. I, I noticed from the emails and from tweets that you had a really good mix of people who never saw the game who said, hey, I'm living vicariously through the 86 Mets. I'm too young. And and I've always said, if you're under the age of 40, you don't remember it. So that's a a pretty big part of our audience. And then there were a lot of people who do remember it. Guys and gals in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s who listen to the pod, who are like, hey, it's been a long time. Let me rewatch it. It's why I don't know if a game from even this century makes a lot of sense. Because... Is it too soon in a way? I don't know. So maybe it is the maybe the Mike Sosha game. It really is the answer, Pete, because it's one of the most brutal losses in the history of the franchise. And again, not something we remember. So we can relate to it because we'll say, oh, I get it now. For those who witnessed it, it may be tougher to rewatch because it's like asking us to rewatch game seven Mets Cardinals 06. But We'll give it some thought. We'll certainly take your emails if you have any suggestions at the RicoB at gmail.com. On the next Rico, we will take a closer look at the position player portion of this roster and what jobs are on the line. And I also mentioned we'll take a closer look at the schedule. It is a brand new schedule. It's very different than anything we've ever seen in the history of Major League Baseball. So we look at the differences and also the strengths of the schedule, uh, division rivals, rivalry series, We'll break down every aspect of the 162 that's set up for the Mets as obviously we creep closer and closer and closer to opening day. Again, you can email the pod, whether it's about a rewatch or anything else, to RicoB at gmail.com. 
We do appreciate you listening and downloading. Peach with Tiki and Tierney on middays. I'm with Craig when he decides to work on Monday through Friday at 2 o'clock. Thank you for listening and downloading and maybe getting mad at Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 